The idea that we are saved from our sin, that it is possible to earn God's favor by something we may do or become, is common to all mankind. It caused our fallen first parents to cover the shame of their sin before God. And indeed, we have tried to use the fig leaves of our own righteousness to cover our shame ever since. This idea that we can merit favor from God by something that we can do is stamped upon the hearts of all mankind. In fact, every pagan religion and every corruption of Christianity is grounded upon some system of merit. If it's not by everything we do, it's by Christ and something else that we do. But the religion of the Bible, which is authored by God himself, is not a religion of merit, but of grace and grace alone. In fact, the good book teaches that we are all bad people who are saved from our sin, not by what we have done or ever could do, but only by what Jesus Christ has done. Only when our hearts are humbled by grace at the cross and our eyes are open to see our absolute inability to earn God's acceptance does the Lord enable us to lay hold of the righteousness that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. The message of salvation by God's grace in Jesus Christ came under the attack under attack in the days of the apostles shortly after the lord jesus had ascended on high there was a lie from the pit of hell that arose amongst the enemies of christ but not just among the heathens but most notably and dangerously by false professing christians who taught a mongrel gospel of Faith in Jesus Christ, but plus obedience to the law of Moses. Paul unmasks this heresy in several of his epistles, most notably in his epistle to the Galatians. He pulls no punches in exposing not only false teachers who presented a false gospel, but also Christ's friends who sadly had come temporarily under this powerful influence. Even Peter, who had earlier given bold testimony to the gospel of grace to the Gentiles, shortly afterward cowered before the enemies of gospel grace. And we read about this in chapter 2 of Galatians. So serious was Peter's lapse, and so powerful was his influence upon others for evil, that Paul was forced to reprove him in a public meeting of the church. And we read about this in verses 14 through 21 of chapter 2 of Galatians. It is the pointed conclusion of Paul's rebuke and his support of the biblical gospel that I wish to ponder for a few moments this morning. Please look at the last verse that our brother John read this morning. <clears throat> Galatians 2 and verse 21. 
I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then he makes this shocking statement, then Christ died needlessly. Paul's gracious but pointed reproof of Peter added to his fearful anathema pronounced upon the Judaizers in Galatians chapter 1. It highlights the danger of works religion, of any kind of mongrel Christianity. Indeed, Paul's concluding statement here in verse 21 answers the most important question that any sinner could ever ask, and it is this, how do I become right with God? Any other answer to this question than what Paul gives nullifies the grace of God. It denies the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, a lot of us take this for granted. And if you've been well taught, you believe these things right down to your socks. But there is within each one of us a tendency to rely upon something we do instead of wholly upon what Christ has done. So let's ponder the God-glorifying, soul-humbling and comforting truth that our righteousness is of God's grace through Christ's death and not of our works. Now this morning we are going to have two headings by way of exposition and then one of application. Now first point is this. Our righteousness is the result of God's grace, not of our merit. According to Paul in Romans and Galatians, grace may be nullified in two ways. In fact, each one denies the proper relationship of the law and the gospel. One way that grace is nullified is when a professing Christian who continues living in sin argues that by his sin, grace may increase. I increase the grace of God when I sin. It points out his grace when I violate God's law. You see, such a person misuses the gospel to nullify the authority of God's law as the rule of his life. And so Paul argues in Romans, but here in Galatians, the gospel is overthrown. The grace of God is nullified when one who professes to have been released from the law's condemning authority, we're still under its commanding authority, but one who professes to be released from the law's condemning authority through faith in Jesus Christ, seeks to justify himself by obedience to the commandments of the law. He says he trusts in Christ to have fully satisfied the wrath of God against him for his disobedience to the law. And then he goes back and he tries to establish his righteousness by his obedience to the law. Such persons seek salvation, not on the basis of God's grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, 
but also through merit, through the works of the law, rather than through faith in Jesus Christ alone. This, Paul says, is to nullify the grace of God. It's to set it aside. Now understand, beloved, that the gospel of grace plus works is really no gospel at all. It's not good news. It's very bad news. It's sad news. It propounds something that we can never do in order to satisfy the righteousness of God. In fact, such is not good news. Instead, it is a message of bondage. Only faith in Jesus Christ and Him crucified brings liberation from the condemnation of the law. We must seek righteousness on the basis of what Christ has done for needy, guilty sinners like ourselves, and not by some kind of system of works righteousness. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. We owe the forgiveness of our sins. We owe our righteousness. We owe our acceptance with God entirely to God's grace in Jesus Christ, period. Full stop. It's Jesus' works, not ours, that justifies. We just sang of that. This is the message that Paul preached. In fact, this is the message that Peter also boldly preached, except for a brief but serious lapse before being reproved and restored by his beloved brother Paul. We're reminded here that good men can make some bad mistakes. In fact, this could be a deadly mistake if followed through to its logical conclusion. Because by the works of the flesh shall no, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in the sight of God. So we are reminded there that there are but two messages of salvation in the world. One is true, one is false. One comes from God, the other comes from the devil. One is of grace, the other is of works. There's no third kind. And there's no middle ground between the two. I suggest to you, beloved, that you add anything in the least to the gospel of grace and you make it into a system of works, no matter how small a smidgen you're looking to to add to the work of Jesus Christ. That's what you're ultimately looking to for your acceptance with God. That Jesus has walked a thousand miles, but you only need to take the last step to heaven. By what you do. This is because we cannot add anything to God's grace without it becoming our trust. So understand, therefore, that Judaizers, they did not preach a full-blown message of works salvation. That's what it ended up being ultimately, but that's not what they preached. Instead, they taught a mongrel gospel of God's grace plus human merit. You must believe in the gospel of Jesus, they would say, and you must also obey the law of Moses if you're going to be right before God. In other words, Gentiles had to become 
Jews. And Jewish believers had to be legalistic Jewish believers. To the Gentiles, you must be circumcised. You must follow the Jewish religious calendar. You must, you must participate in the ritual dietary restrictions. Paul exposes the criminal folly of attempting to justify ourselves by obedience to the law in addition to faith in Christ. If we choose to be saved by the law, our obedience must be perfect. It must be universal. It must be perpetual. It must be perfect. We must plumb the depths of the law in thought, word, and deed. No failure. It must be universal. It must be to all of the law of God. And it must be universal to the very end of our lives. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Paul makes this very plain. That if we're going to be saved by our works, our obedience to the law, it must be perfect, universal, and perpetual. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 10. He says, if this is what you want, this is, this, is, this is what's prescribed for you. For as many as are of the works of the law, that is those who choose to be justified by obedience to Moses, for as many as are of the works of the law, notice, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. And he shows how these two systems do not mix. However, the law is not of faith. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. On the contrary, not only is the law not of faith, he who practices them shall live by them. Rich young ruler learned from Jesus' words that he was a covetous man. He thought that he'd Obeyed all the law. I've done all of this from my youth up. Well, what, else, what else can I do? And Jesus put his finger upon the man's covetousness. He says, sell what you own, come and follow me. Well, the man's face grew sad and he walked away because he had much possessions. He who practices the law shall live by them. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that we are violators of God's law. In fact, we've broken every one of those commandments, if not with our hands, in our hearts and with our tongues. But notice the good news of the gospel. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So with this basic difference, understanding of the difference between the gospel of grace and all other religions which are ultimately of merit, let us ponder Paul's affirmation of the grace of God through the righteousness secured by the death of Jesus Christ 
found here in verse 21. So we've seen that our righteousness is the result of God's grace, not of our merit. More specifically, notice secondly, our righteousness is founded upon Christ's death, not upon our obedience. In Galatians 2, beginning at verse 16, and going through verse 21, Paul here is at pains to teach justification through grace by the death of Christ without the works of the law. Let's back up and let's look at verse 16. I'll read verses 16 through 20 and then make some comments. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Notice that in verse 16, not once or even twice, but three times Paul contrasts justification by faith with justification by the works of the law. Paul is seeking to pound this into our heads. He's bending the nail over. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we who have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Three times he testifies that we are justified by faith. Three times he testifies we are not justified by the deeds of the law. Brethren, there's a powerful gospel redundancy here that we need to listen to. And then in verse 17, somewhat difficult verse to understand, but I think what he's doing here is he's arguing that the gospel of Christ, no less than the law of Moses, exposes our sin and our need for justification. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners like the, like the Gentiles... Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. No, He shows us that we are sinners so that we can come to Him to be justified by faith. And then in verse 18, Paul graciously shows how Peter's hypocrisy proved him a transgressor. Since by abandoning the gospel, he led man, men back to the law, which only condemns and cannot save. For if I, he puts himself in Peter's place, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, that's exactly what Peter did by joining himself to the Judaizers, sidling up to them, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I showed the law, which cannot save, and said it's only the gospel. Now, but if I go back to the law, I'm a transgressor of the very message that I once preached. Paul then testifies 
in verse 19 that he died to the system of merit through the law that he might embrace the life-giving gospel of God. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. Following that statement in verse 20, he presents his glorious testimony of union with Christ in his death by which he died to the law so that he might now live by faith in the one who loved him and died for him. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. What Paul is teaching here is that grace is nullified when we seek to be justified by any system that includes works. But God's grace instead is magnified in the death of Christ. Indeed, Jesus' cross is the single most powerful witness to God's grace. It plainly shows that righteousness comes not by our obedience to the law, but by Christ's death, not by our submission, but by His sacrifice. This brings us to Paul's shocking conclusion, exposing the logical fallacy of those who substitute our works for Christ's sacrifice in the message of grace. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. That's exactly what Peter was doing. I do not nullify the grace of God. And here's why. For if righteousness comes through the law, and this is the shocking conclusion, then Christ died needlessly. We should almost shudder to read words like that. But they point up the gospel message that if Christ did not die, we cannot be justified. And to make his point, Paul uses a syllogism here. A syllogism to argue that God's justifying grace comes not by our obedience to the law, but on the basis of Jesus' death. Now, if you in high school or college took logic you will remember that a syllogism is a form of deductive reasoning. It includes a major premise, which is more general, a minor premise, which is more specific, and then a conclusion. And if both premises are true, if the major premise is true and the minor premise is true, then the conclusion that follows will also be true. An example of a syllogism would be the major premise, all dogs have four legs. Minor premise, Rover is a dog. You come in inescapably to the conclusion that Rover, because he's a dog, has four legs. Now here are the points of Paul's gospel syllogism derived from verse 21. Major premise. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. 
minor premise, and this is the glorious key. But Christ did not die needlessly. And therefore, the conclusion, righteousness does not come through the law. So let's explore the premises and conclusion of this gospel syllogism. First of all, the major premise. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And though the Judaizers, they gave lip service to our need for Christ's substitutionary death, they nullified the grace of God by requiring our obedience to His law for our justification. You see, for them, justification was not God's gift received through faith in a crucified Lord, but as a reward for obedience to the law. And by the requirement of law works, the Judaizers denied the sole foundation of our forgiveness and justification in the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, they, they nullified the grace of God. So by their doctrine of legal righteousness, they in effect taught that Christ died needlessly. If we can earn our salvation by our obedience to the law, then Jesus didn't need to die. Paul says this nullifies the grace of God. Indeed, the Bible teaches that we are not justified from our sins by our works, but by Christ's works, especially His death upon the cross, His chief work, Romans 5 and verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Not justified by our works, but justified by His blood. As Paul later teaches in the fifth chapter of Romans, it is by Jesus' righteousness, by His perfectly holy life, and especially by His atonement as the just one acting on behalf of the unjust, that we are made righteous. As Paul states in Romans 5, verses 16 through 19, it is through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The one acting on behalf of the many. Brethren, we cannot deny the death of Christ as the sole ground of our justification and still have a biblical gospel. It might be called a gospel, but it is not the gospel because it is not true. Christ must obey that we might be made right. He must die so that we may live. The Father must sacrifice the beloved Son so that He may bring many sinful sons to glory. That's the gospel. Some liberals who deny the biblical doctrine of Christ's death under the wrath of God for sinners accuse God the Father of divine child abuse. Have you ever heard that? 
Indeed, I affirm that God the Father would be guilty of divine child abuse in punishing Christ on our behalf if it was possible that we could be saved in any other way than by Jesus' suffering and death. Why would he punish his son if we could be saved in some other way? Why would he punish Jesus if we can be justified by our works? Brethren, if that was the case, then the charge would be true that Christ died needlessly. But brethren, Christ did not die needlessly. Instead, he fully accomplished the Father's will through his death in providing justification for all for whom he died. Everyone that the Father had given him, a host of believing sinners that no man can number from every tribe and kindred and people and tongue. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, notice, and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. John 5, verse 24. We are not under God's judgment because Jesus placed himself there on our behalf. Just one more observation here. If we are thinking biblically, we will affirm that there exists no other way for God to satisfy His justice in providing the foundation of our justification than by the substitutionary sacrifice of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Brethren, the cross was not one way among many options God could have chosen for our salvation. No, it was the only way for us to be made right with God. The only way for our sins to be forgiven. To use the language of Professor Murray, the death of Christ became a consequent absolute necessity when God decreed to save sinners. There was no other way that they could be saved than by the death of His Son. His justice could never be satisfied unless it was by a substitute on behalf of those for whom he died. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, said Peter. So consider with me then the blessed minor premise in Paul's syllogism. We've seen that if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly I've already anticipated the minor premise, but Christ did not die needlessly. That is our hope. We're going to be singing praises to that fact for all eternity. This is really the heart and soul of, of Paul's syllogism. It supports the first premise and it assures us of its glorious conclusion. And brethren, I suggest to you that a blasphemy more derogatory to the glory of God than to deny the efficacy of Christ's successful substitutionary death could hardly be imagined. If Jesus' death were needless, 
then we have no hope of righteousness since we cannot justify ourselves by anything that we do. We of all people would be most miserable for believing in an open tomb that testifies to sinful men and wandering angels that it is finished, if indeed it is not finished and God has not accepted Jesus' death for His people. We might as well go out and shoot ourselves. Indeed, if Christ died needlessly, the heavens would convulse and creation would collapse, since the one who died now lives and upholds all things by the word of his power. But bless God that when Jesus had made purification of sins, what happened? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, proving that it is finished, forever finished. Completely finished. So let us consider the plain testimony of just a few texts that Jesus' death was not needless, but instead it was effectual in accomplishing our salvation. First of all, we know that Jesus did not die needlessly since His blood redeems and purifies us. Titus 2.14 Speaking of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Pay our prize, ransom us from every lawless deed. That's our legal, uh, the illegal effect of his death and the moral and spiritual effect. And purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. His death was not needless. It accomplished the purpose that God gave for it. Next, we know that our sinless Savior did not die needlessly, because He to whom our sins were imputed during His suffering and death has imputed His righteousness to us. He took our guilt and He gave us His righteousness. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 21. Here's the heart of the gospel. He that is the Father made Him the Son. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The great transaction took place. Jesus took our sins. He didn't deserve them, but He took them so that He might give us His righteousness which we didn't Deserve, but he freely gave. Further, we know that Jesus did not die needlessly because even now those in glory who are the purchased property of his blood are singing songs of praise to the Lamb that was slain. Revelation 5 and verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, and this is the coronation of the Son as he enters glory after his ascension. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He didn't die needlessly. Finally, we know that Jesus did not die needlessly because we have one seated at the right hand of God who by his death has pacified the wrath of God against us for our sins. 
1 John 2. And verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he pacifies the wrath of God, having, having received in him the outpoured, unmeasured wrath of God. He's turned it away from us. He's pacified it. For he himself is the propitiation for our sins. God is no longer angry. His justice has fallen upon his son. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He is a propitiation for a whole world of sinners. There's other texts, brethren. But none of these glorious truths, none of these heart-cheering gospel realities would be ours if Christ had died needlessly. Instead, they are the blessed results of Paul's argument, the foundation of his reasoning that our righteousness is founded upon Christ's death. And that assures us of the following conclusion. Major premise, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Minor premise, but Christ did not die needlessly. Therefore, the glorious conclusion, righteousness does not come by the law. See, both Paul's premises lead to, to this powerful gospel truth because both of them are true. Our righteousness comes through Christ by what He has done, not by anything that we have done or could ever do. Our sins against God's law put Christ upon the cross. His death under the law for our sins is the sole foundation of our justification. His works, not our works. All of His, none of ours. This is Paul's thesis. Look at Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. He, speaking of the Father, saved us. Notice, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, as kindness and favor shown to the miserable, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, eternity past, eternity future, the whole history of mankind in between, and what Jesus was purposed to do, what He has done, becomes the ground of our everlasting happiness. No gospel theme is more frequently repeated by Paul than justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the deeds of the law. Since Christ did not die needlessly, our righteousness in Him is forever secure. It can never be in ourselves. We cannot add a single thing to it. He died under the penalty of the law so that we might be made right before God and saved from the wrath to come. 
Now, does that seem like too simple of a message? Do do we need to add something to it? So let me ask you, what about you? Do you believe this with all your heart? Do you look away from yourself entirely and all to Jesus and Jesus alone for what He has done? For your acceptance with God? Do you repudiate all hope of being made right before God by anything that you have done or ever could do? Do you cast off as wicked any intention of meriting God's favor other than by looking to Christ and to Christ alone who has earned our righteousness by His sacrifice upon the cross? Can you affirm with the hymn writer, Thy works, not mine, O Christ, speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done. They bid my fear depart. To whom save thee who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee? Let me bring some application this morning to various individuals. First of all, let me speak to true Christians who trust in Christ's death alone for their righteousness. If Peter, who preached Christ and Christ alone, could be turned away, then we can be turned away too. You ought not think that we are impervious to the temptation to look to our deeds. I'm preaching a series on the Ten Commandments. And one danger in preaching on God's commandments is that we can begin to relate to God by what we do in obedience to those commandments rather than what Jesus Christ has done in plumbing the depths of all of those commandments. And somehow think that we have a part in our justification. How subtle and powerful our temptation to seek to be justified by our works Dear ones, we must continually cast off all hope of meriting righteousness by anything that we do. You see, righteousness is not begun by Christ and then finished by us. Instead, we must ever and always rely wholly upon Christ's death to pay for our sin and to earn our righteousness. Our testimony must ever be the words of the old hymn writer, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. There cannot be a charge raised against God's elect, that is, those who look to Jesus alone for their acceptance with Him by what He has done. And this raises a question about our witness to others. Does fear of rejection tempt you, as it apparently tempted Peter, to downplay the strictness of the message of the cross, that it's all of the cross and none of us? 
We must never fudge on the gospel of grace in order to gratify men's self-righteousness in the name of preaching Christ. We must not affirm men's lofty views of their own goodness and gratify their self-esteem. We must not tip our hats toward their hope in anything that they do other than trust Christ. Instead, we must graciously show them, even as Paul did Peter, the folly, the dangerous and potentially damning folly, if it still followed, of mixing law with grace. Because when we do so, we nullify the grace of God. Second, secondly, for questionable Christians who trust in Christ plus something else. Let me ask, what are you trusting in? Could it be that you're not trusting in the death of Christ alone for your righteousness? Could it be that you're trusting in Jesus plus? Very subtle. Jesus plus your Christian upbringing. Jesus plus perhaps your response to an altar call. Jesus plus your prayers. Jesus plus your Bible reading. Jesus plus your scripture memorization. Jesus plus your church attendance. Jesus plus your church membership. Jesus plus your obedience to the Ten Commandments. Jesus plus your attempts to live by the golden rule. Jesus plus your witness to the lost. Jesus plus your plans to reform your life. Jesus plus, Jesus plus, Jesus plus. Many of these things are right and good and should be done. But are we trusting in them? Whether you are trusting in your obedience to God's law or to any system of merit, if you are trusting in the slightest to any of these things, you are not trusting wholly in Christ alone. We are justified only by a whole trust in a whole Savior. And I fear that many professing Christians are trusting more in their faith than they are in Christ. They're looking looking at their faith as validation for their acceptance with God. Rather than their faith being the instrument of an empty hand that lays hold of Christ. We must not let faith get in the way of Jesus, brethren. Because faith lays hold of Jesus. You see, whatever we trust in addition to Christ is ultimately what we are trusting in. And that was Paul's message to Peter and to the Galatians. And it's his message to us too. Thirdly and finally, I have a word here for non-Christians who are trusting in anything but Christ. Now I urge you, I beg you, be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. He knows your heart. You can't hide anything from Him. And if you're honest with yourself, you are trusting in something other than Christ. All of us are incurably religious. 
And if you consider yourself an atheist or an agnostic or a pagan or a heathen, you're still trusting in something for your acceptance with God. God has written eternity upon your heart. You know that this life is not all that there is. And when you die, you know that you're going to have to stand before God. God has stamped that truth upon your soul. That you haven't thanked Him, you haven't glorified, glorified Him, but you know that one day you're going to meet Him. fact is, you were born trusting in yourself like all of us. And this folly is bound up in the heart of every son of Adam until God, by His grace, replaces your self-trust with trust in Christ Jesus alone. This is why the message of the cross <clears throat> seems foolishness to you. It seems stupid to you to trust in a crucified Savior. I can't see Him, but I can trust in myself whom I can see. But the humbling message of the Bible teaches us to say, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You must give up all trust in your supposed goodness, all hope of earning your salvation, all plans of reforming your life. You cannot merit salvation. You can't be made right before God by anything that you do. The story is told of a benevolent man who had a very poor neighbor to whom he sent this message. I wish to make you a gift of a farm. Well, the poor man was pleased at the idea of having a farm, but he was too proud to receive it as a gift. And so he thought much and anxiously about the man's offer. His desire to have a home grew stronger and stronger each day, but his pride was very great. But finally, he decided to visit the man who made him the offer. But at this time, he became overcome by a strange delusion. He imagined that he had a bag of gold. So he went with his bag and he said to the rich man, I have received your message and I have come to see you. I wish to own the farm, but I want to pay for it. I will give you a bag of gold for it. Let's see your gold, said the owner of the farm. The poor man opened his bag and looked and his face became sad. He said, Sir, I, I thought it was gold, but I'm sorry to say it is, is but silver. I will give you my bag of silver for your farm. Look again. I do not think it's even silver, was a solemn but kind reply. The poor man looked, and as he looked, his eyes were opened wider. And he said, how I have been deceived. It's not silver, but only copper. Will you sell me your farm for my bag of copper? You may have it all. Look again, was the only reply. The poor man looked, and his eyes filled with tears. His delusion seemed to be gone. And he said, oh, I am undone. It is not even copper. It is only ashes. How poor I am. I wish to own that farm, but have nothing to pay. Will you give me the farm? The rich man replied, yes, 
That was my first and only offer. Will you accept it on such terms? And with humility and with great eagerness, the poor man said, Yes, and a thousand blessings on you for your kindness. And brethren, this is how we receive the grace of God, with the empty hand of faith, because we are poor sinners who can give God nothing and must receive from him everything, including our salvation. We must extend to him the empty hand of faith and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, if a choice apostle could fall prey to an unbiblical gospel for a time. What does that say about each one of us? Lord, we all have a propensity to look to ourselves and what we have done rather than to Christ and what he has done alone. And so help us afresh to lay hold of the gospel that it is Jesus Christ plus nothing. It's the empty hand of faith that receives the fullness of grace through what Jesus Christ has accomplished by his holy life and by his sin-atoning death that were justified by his blood. And Lord, if there be any here this morning that are like this man in the story who think that they have a bag of gold, show them that it is filled with nothing but ashes. Lead them to conclude that they are utterly undone and that they will run to you that offers them life in this world and eternal life in the world to come. That they might be saved not only from their sins, but saved from their self-righteousness. Not only in the evil that they have done and the good that, that they haven't done, but save them from their high esteem of themselves, cast them down in the dust that they might look up to you and save and say, save a wretch like me. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.